This episode is brought to you by The Virginia Company. Here is a few words from our sponsor. Is life tough? Are you sick of seeing death in the streets of London? Are you the second son with no inheritance coming your way? Consider an indentureship with The Virginia Company. We will pay your way to the new world for a brief working term of only seven years. At the end of that term, you'll be entitled to a payoff of 10 acres of land for your very own self. A new start in a new world. Find your future today in a land that John Smith said is filled with butter and honey. Join us. Consider marking an X at the Virginia Company Harbor Station near you. Your new world opportunity awaits. And now, back to our regularly scheduled show. Jamestown was first settled in May of 1607. This settlement was a corporate settlement based around five main objectives. First, to establish a fort for English claim and territorial control against the Spanish. Second, to create a permanent trading station for the lucrative New World fur and sassafras trades. Now, sassafras at the time was thought of as a treat-all medical wonder, but that fad only lasted for a couple of years, which is why most people have never heard of sassafras. Third, to learn the native languages and cultures to help facilitate further trade in order to give the English merchants a leg up against other European competitors in the New World. Now, it's important to stop here for a second. The European world followed the economic idea of mercantilism, which viewed the world's trade as finite. Because of this ideology, each country was looking to corner and monopolize as much of the world's share of trade as they could. This often meant that their military worked in conjunction with the interests of merchants, because using your military to monopolize your share of trade was thought of to be just as productive as economically producing and outcompeting for trade. This ideology of mercantilism becomes an important political motivation for the expanding European colonial empires of the 17th and 18th century. Fourth, and least we forget, Jamestown was hopefully a launching pad for mineral speculation. These first charters, and even charters later into the 17th century, Boston, Maryland, and Maine, would have crowned claims to any gold and silver. We just kind of let the issue die because we know that the outcome is eventually there is no gold and silver in the North American New World. So we tend to just drop talking about it. But the continued hope and search for gold and silver continued throughout the 17th century in the American colonies. Fifth, and this sounds a little crazy today with today's knowledge of the North American continent, but the English motive with these initial colonies was to find what would later be termed the Northwest Passage, a mythical waterway or very narrow isthmus in North America where the English could build trade routes that could get to Asia. Because Asia, after all, was the most lucrative market in the world. The discovery of the New World was something that accidentally happened on the way to trying to find quicker trade routes to Asia. And although the Spanish had plundered great profits in Central and South America, Europe was still looking for a good naval passage to Asia. In Central America, the Spanish had constructed some ships on the Pacific side of the narrow landmasses in Central America, and they enjoyed a little bit of lucrative trade with Asia, but they only really could ship South American trade goods like tobacco. But a full sea passage 
that would not require extensive overland hauling of European goods would be monumental to the nation that controlled it. Now today we think, why was there all this trouble for pepper and spices in Asia? I know they taste delicious, but eating bland food is something you could deal with. Well, we're all familiar that salt allows the preservation of meats. We enjoy this every time we eat some beef jerky. What we don't remember today is that canning didn't exist, and spices allowed for the preservation of fruits. And on these long sea voyages, a lack of vitamin C would give sailors scurvy. And that is just one of the common ailments due to a lack of a nutritious diet. And we joke today, pirates with their scurvy. But scurvy killed many sailors in this time. It was not a joking matter at all. The ability to keep your sailors healthy over long voyages meant the ability to project naval power across the seas. Spices were in a small way almost as critical to military power as oil is today for the projection of power. And spices also had the added quality that it allowed anyone with money in Europe to afford a relatively healthier diet, further driving up the price for spices. Returning to Jamestown. Jamestown's labor was not the best and the brightest the English had to offer, nor was it a devout religious group like Plymouth would be. Jamestown was a corporate expedition filled with company captains who would oversee a laboring class that was filled with the cheapest dregs of English society. In the first decade, Jamestown would be supplied with labor from men and boys, and then as they died out, resupplied, and there was a few ways that the Virginia Company could resupply this purchased labor. The company would purchase crown prisoners, essentially receiving those prisoners as slave labor for the rest of their prison sentence. They also purchased orphans from English churches, and this was somewhat of a social norm. It was in fact seen positively for a company or, or any individual to indenture orphans into his family or business because they would get training and structure for them to get a better life into adulthood. And, of course, any of those fooled with the false advertising of lands of butter and honey. Almost all of the labor would be indentured labor in Jamestown. People that mostly didn't even agree to be part of this colony. They were essentially slaves. Now, indentureship was commonplace in England and came in three forms. The first type was an apprenticeship, where you would pay a skilled tradesman for your son to be his apprentice. In this relationship, your son would work for him for seven years, his labor and his production would be the tradesman, and he would not be paid in any form during that time, but he would be trained in a trade. Kind of like college, that's right. You paid a craftsman to indenture your son through his teenage years, and as repayment, he would get training that was provided. And if the skill in question was a competitive trade, you would also likely have to pay that tradesman a lump sum up front, just for the privilege of that training. Remember, mercantilism is not a free market. There is no free market in the system. If the king said the guild could only have two blacksmiths in, say, London, then no one else could open up a blacksmith, period. So being the apprentice of a guild smith was also a very valuable political commodity. But going down a tier, the second type of indentureship was for loans. 
If you wanted to voyage to the New World but just didn't have enough money, most of the population, you could agree to an indentureship for seven years to the company that paid your voyage. And the last type of indentureship, as mentioned before, was purchased prisoner labor. Now, fun facts time. Being indebted was an offense that could receive a prison sentence. Also, debt was passed down generationally. You could be jailed for not paying off your father's debts. So if someone failed to pay off a debt, or broke an apprentice's contract, or really found themselves in prison for any of the very easy reasons in this time period, then they too could get shipped off to some company who would send them as slave labor to some New World English colony. So, by the winter of 1609, two years into Jamestown, when the colony was falling apart into what would later be called the Starving Time, when the average life expectancy once you landed in Jamestown was six months, can anyone really be blamed for mutiny or attempting to run away to the natives? Jamestown was hell on earth for its first few years. Jamestown's leadership had not prioritized becoming food independent and had relied heavily on supplies from trade from the local Powhatan Confederacy. And the soft currents of history often play funny games. Because in 1606, one of the worst droughts in Virginia in the last 800 years had started. And although the Powhatan had enough supplies for themselves, their interest in trading with Jamestown quickly decreased after year over year of drought. Jamestown's leadership had not tried to establish a relationship with the Powhatan based on mutual friendship. The Virginia Company was about business. There was, there was no brotherly love or mutual respect. And that was reciprocal from both sides of the relationship. The Powhatan chief was perfectly fine with this relationship and having Jamestown be starving and reliant on him. It put him in a superior position for trade, and it would put him in a superior position trading those goods to the interior native nations. During the two years of the starving time, around 70% of the population of Jamestown died. There was even some cases of cannibalism, with a famous story of a man that was found with his murdered wife cooking in a pot. He was hanged for those crimes. Relations with the Powhatan continued to sour. The chief had invited Jamestown and its population in their state of starvation to move their settlement next to his main encampment 40 miles from the coast to incorporate Jamestown people and their skilled merchants into his hierarchy as his personal smiths and gunpowder makers. They would produce supplies and he, King Wahasanaqua, would supply them with their basic needs. The colonial leadership of Jamestown politely declined this request, but a king's invitation, any king in history, is never an option for any culture. They're just giving you the appearance of a courtesy. Shortly after Jamestown's refusal, the closest nation, the Paspahe, then started raiding skirmishes against Jamestown. Now, besides starvation and mutiny, Jamestown faced war with the closest nations around them. Jamestown then built some defensive forts on the James River designed to defend them against the natives and the farms around Jamestown, establishing Fort Algernon and Point Comfort. But by 1610, Thomas Gates, leading this colony embattled by starvation and war, decided to evacuate to another settlement area north of Jamestown in Virginia. He even had the town pack up, they loaded the boats, they set sail away from Jamestown for a couple of hours. 
And it's often amazing how happenstance can dramatically change the course of history. After sailing away from Jamestown, the resupply fleet that had been scattered that summer by a hurricane finally arrived. Francis West immediately pulled rank on Thomas Gates and ordered everyone to return to Jamestown. West took a much harsher attitude toward the hostile natives. Immediately ordering an attack on the Kekatan, who just happened to be the closest nation to Jamestown, then sending word to the Powhatan chief of his ultimatum, return all colonists, who were taken as slaves, and their plundered property or face war with the English. The Powhatan chief sent his own ultimatum. The English could stay in their fort at Jamestown or leave back on the ocean. In a response that fits this time, not our time, West sent the cut-off hand of a Paspahe captive to the Powhatan chief. The first Anglo-Powhatan War started in 1610 and would last until 1614. When we look back, this war foreshadows the soft currents that favored the English culture in the century to come, and even its eventual supremacy in attrition-style warfare of the Europeans. But first, I want to break some myths of this time. We often hear that it was guns and gunpowder that allowed the English to simply conquer the natives. But the natives identified guns as an important weapon of war and immediately had acquired them. Also, muskets and trained bowmen didn't have a huge disparity on the battlefield. These wars were not set-piece battles of redcoats of the 18th century British army. These were farmers and colonists and native warriors who also grew their own food, fighting an up-close, personal war, burning each other's homes, killing each other's family, skirmishing in the woods. Throughout all the Anglo-Native wars of the 17th century, the natives would outperform English in inflicting casualties. But performance on the battlefield was not why the English would eventually be victorious in these wars. The currents of cultural warfare that allowed the English to win were not a noticeable thing on that battlefield. It's only in hindsight that we today can see the important factors to this history. The English fought European culture wars of attrition and submission. And although the English settler population was much smaller than the Powhatan Confederacy, which consisted of 30 nations of 150 settlements and a population estimated around 21,000 people, the few thousand English in Jamestown were part of a much larger English kingdom. London alone had 200,000 people in this time. And the English were willing to export excess population almost sure to die within a few years, to this new world again and again and again. So once war had been started, the English would provide however many people it required for victory. By 1600, the Europeans had been fighting bitter total wars for generations during the Reformation. They had also learned to fight wars to root out and end the problem once and for all. They fought with the rules of total war, where to end the threat of future wars, you would do this by decimating or enslaving the opposing culture if possible. This European culture was unlike the native culture of warfare, where bettering someone on the battlefield would in turn earn position for the eventual negotiated peace. War was for settling who was the most powerful, which decided who got tribute from whom. 
For the native nations, manpower was a highly valuable resource. It took most of their population all year to grow food, hunt, game, and manufacture a few scarce trade goods. A nation's power rested in their ability to muster manpower, both on the battlefield and in domestic production. Wars of attrition between the nations on the east coast of America would have led to mass starvation on both sides and eventual subjugation by a third nation. Instead of war tactics of attrition, the Algonquian cultures prized battlefield heroism and displays of fearlessness. There is many stories of confused English militias seeing natives standing in open as the combat started, yelling and jeering. That they were showing their fearlessness to their comrades was all but lost on the English. And the warrior initiation culture of many Algonquian nations was to apply to their young men brutal physical violence so that they could show their fearlessness in the face of pain. Individual fearlessness, mustering soldiers, would then transition to tribute and negotiated pieces. The first Anglo-Powhatan War would be a war of skirmishes, with mostly civilians paying the price. Burnt farms, villages, sacks, crimes, which inspired one side to retribution, and then the other side back for retribution, leading to a feeling of having to avenge that sort of grievance that you have, and, and that gets reciprocated on the other side. And this is not uncommon. This is, this is what war often does. The thing about these wars that's different is they're not industrial. These were personal wars. They probably had traded. They killed each other within 30 feet. They could see each other's eyes. They stabbed each other. Very intimate and personal, not like the huge industrial wars we think of where you shoot somebody with a missile over the horizon. The Paspehe, who were closest to Jamestown and fought the brunt of the war, would have their village burnt to the ground, and the scattered remnants of that nation would never have the mass of population again to reform. They would be incorporated into nearby nations of the Powhatan Confederacy. And by 1612, after two years of these skirmishes, this attrition, West started to conduct independent peace talks with individual nations located around Jamestown. After all, they faced the brunt of the English hostilities, and the fact that they were willing to negotiate separately from the Powhatan Confederacy was a clear signal of the diminishing power of the chief of the Powhatan. West also happened to capture Pocahontas, who was one of the chief's daughters, on a raid of another nation's village that she was visiting. West used her life as ransom to get the Powhatan chief to agree to an English-favored peace. And during the four years of war, the English, who no longer needed to respect the land ownership of nations around them, which they were at war with, had expanded new settlements on the south coast of the James River. And in this negotiation, they would gain the agreed rights to those lands. And one last note before we go. Also in 1612, Jamestown grew its first successful crop of tobacco, which was exported back to England. This made the colony have the prospect of becoming financially self-sufficient in the future and help the Virginia Company recruit even more investment into the colony. Because you have to remember that even after the war, Jamestown was still completely reliant on English relief boats arriving with additional bodies to repopulate the colony. Jamestown, war or peace, was still devouring people. By 1616, of the 2,000 people that had arrived in Jamestown, only 351 remained alive. But if 
They could get the mass production of tobacco growing, then Virginia and those that invested in her would become fabulously wealthy. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think who enjoy it. Thank you again, and until next time.